This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Granted, we are modernized. I don't want to mm-hmm. make it look like we're such an alien or foreign culture, you right. know, but modernity prizes potential and youth, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. we're a consumer society, we're a capitalist society. Everything right. is about productivity and potential. Mm-hmm. And if that's the only option you have culturally, you will feel more challenged to to be of worth when uh, you're not productive or you no longer signal potential, right? But if the options of tradition is more apparent, say here, yeah. right? You can sort of quote unquote graduate to becoming a grandfather where you have a social position. Right. You're not just like okay. another 80-year-old individual who, who can't work or can't be productive or can't, yeah. can't kind of blend in with the sort of obsession with potential that liberal modernity has, right? right. It's all about like, who can you be? Or oh, you've been somebody 50 years already, be somebody new. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, take right. up a new hobby, <laughs> you know? And there's a way in which you can gloss this you know, sentimentally and say like, oh, it's about individual potential, you know, but at some point your body takes a toll, you yeah. know, and, and one thing I appreciate about at least the discursive options we have here, right, right. because we're not just modern, we mm-hmm. still have cultural attachments, is that, you know what, if you're in some kind of like network of kinship mm-hmm. and you, you know, you have a family, you kind of just graduate to become a grandfather right. and that accords some sort of social comforts. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fawad Rahman, and this is the show that explores concepts, theories, and society. Each week, we explore a topic that is of academic interest while breaking it down for a general public. Today, we are going to talk to Karuna Sara Thomas. You are a gerontologist and a lecturer at HELP University. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Fuad. So let's talk about your field, uh, gerontology. Just for people who are not familiar with that term, I don't think it's really a, a frequently used term, even in academia uh, or even psychology for that matter. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you study and the sorts of questions uh, you explore in your discipline. All right, sure. Thanks, Watt. Um, gerontology is the studying of aging and the elderly. What I look at is that it tends to be multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, my background is in psychology, so my specific interest is in the psychology of aging. But really, when you think about aging, when you think about older people, there are so many ways to look at it. So you mm-hmm. can look at it from the perspective of demography, what is happening to the population, what is changing. You can look at public policy that's related to older people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can look at sociology, what is happening within our communities that is changing. And so what I studied actually took a multidisciplinary approach, mm-hmm. but my specific focus is on the psychology of aging. Right. So yeah. what are the other disciplines that you've engaged in the process? Well, I find demography to be very exciting. I think you cannot study older people in isolation. Right. You cannot just look at trends and go, oh, they behave this way. This is right, their human right. behavior. You have to look at how they interact with other parts of the community, other maybe yeah. younger age groups. Or, you know, if you say old age is 65 and above, right. then what is 65 and below? Are they mid-adulthood? Right, so I really right. find that that interaction and understanding different groups within a society to be really interesting. Yeah, um, and on that point too, you know, when people talk about ageism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, alongside the rise of our awareness of sexism, racism and so forth, we tend to think of the elderly as a minority. 
when in fact they're not. And we're all going to get there one day. We so are, it's going to be, yes. if not already, a significant portion of the population. That's where demographics help to contextualize mm-hmm. the yeah, subject, right? Definitely, yeah. Um, currently in Malaysia, individuals above 65 account for about 6.5% of the population, mm-hmm. which is not terribly large when you think about it. That's less than 10%. But it does mean that in about 10 or 15 years, because our middle portion of the population, those who are 50, 40, they will then be in this group. And then suddenly you have 20% of your population who is now above 65. And that mm-hmm. completely changes the dynamic of the population of the country, the people in the workforce, right. who is now in retirement, who might need greater health care. Yeah. yeah, and it's an infrastructural issue it too, is. right? I mean, like in the sense where... You need safety nets provided, you need greater awareness so that that process can be supported. So I see what you mean now. You know, we tend to think of aging as an isolated issue when in fact it is uh, social and Mm -hmm. as a consequence political. Now, for a subject that deals with aging, I do also know that it's also up and coming, right? It's a growing field. So tell us about why that is the case. Well... What we see nowadays is that because of improvements in healthcare, because of you know people having less children and investing more in children, so you have people with higher education levels, we see life expectancy increasing. Mm-hmm. So previously, about 50, 60 years ago, especially someone in Malaysia might only expect to live till 50, 60 maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, the average life expectancy for a Malaysian female is 78. Right. And that's increasing. So it's an upward trend. And what that means is that people are now living to older ages. They are Mm -hmm. not, for lack of a better word, um, dying at a younger age. And so you see a greater proportion of older people in the population, Mm -hmm. where previously there was more of a cutoff point where after 80, it was just really a minority. Now you see people living to 80, 90, 100. Our prime minister is 94. So you're seeing that trend of people living longer. And so you have a greater proportion of the population who is older. Mm -hmm. Uh, But where does psychology come into it? Because when people think of aging, the immediate concern might be medical, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But you're coming in from a psychological angle. So what do you offer? What's the perspective that you bring to the discussion? Well, I think with psychology in general, the concern is with human behavior. What changes do we see in behavior? And of course, in later life, there are definitely healthcare issues, and and that's an important area to look at. But there are also changes in mental health, changes in terms of how people behave. For example, the transition from working to retirement, Mm -hmm. that is a huge life transition. It may not have health consequences, but psychologically, it can really change how the person views themselves how they think about sort of where their life is going and what they plan to do from now on. Yeah. And so it's transitions like this that are more behavioral focused that changes a person's mindset. Um, that is what we look at in, in, the in what way is of that, aging. In what way is that a problem, right? Because somebody might just tell you, okay, I guess that's just a part of life. You retire and you pick up a hobby, learn the violin or something, right? So mm-hmm. what... Because when you talk about clinical psychology or you talk about like uh, aiding our understanding of aging, it assumes that there is an issue or there is a problem. Are we generally insensitive to them or is it the question of, you know, how old age leads to certain anxiety? How would you describe the problem of aging necessarily? Well, I wouldn't necessarily call it a problem as right. much as a necessity to understand it, I right. think might be a better way of phrasing it. Um So I'll go back to my example about retirement. Yes, you have someone who has, say, worked for 40, 50 years, and now they're in this transition where they may not work at all. But 
better outcomes in later life, so improved health, improved psychological well-being is associated with working for longer periods of mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. So continuing in the workforce, maintaining that social network, right, right. Um, keeping your mind active. And so you have sort of that dilemma where that person is now losing not just the mental part of a job, but also the social part of a job. Right, right. And that can have huge implications on a person. So not necessarily a problem, but definitely a transition. So should someone who reaches the state pension age continue working? Should they then choose to pursue a hobby? Right. Um, but then does that mean that as they get older, they become more isolated, which has issues of its own? And that's when you start seeing mental health issues, depression, loneliness. Right, right. Yeah. And this is what's interesting to me because I read statistics somewhere that says something about like, you know, social isolation has more damaging effects to aging than cigarettes or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. exactly, but sure. when yeah. I heard that phrase it struck me as interesting that while a lot of aging is discussed in terms of like what happens to the body what happens to the psyche is mm. equally if not more important yeah. and then you you would think about the options that are available hospice care is one yeah. nursing homes is another option but then you realize that well they can still feel isolated even in hospice facilities or nursing homes, right? Right. When supposedly, ostensibly, it looks like they're making friends and Mm. they're taking these field trips and all that, but they can still feel nonetheless isolated. And I think you can find commonplace examples of this in families where, you know, especially in our context, the patriarch or the matriarch is never, you know, not never, but um, it's more often the case than not that they would be linked to family, they would stay with a doctor or something like that, but they can still feel isolated, right? So what does isolation mean in this regard, right? In what way is it a form of alienation or being estranged from the broader community? Um, I think there's two types of isolation that we look at. Um, There is the more obvious physical isolation. So say an older person who might have some kind of disability living in a rural area or somewhere where there isn't good access to public transport, they may not get proper health care, they may not have proper nutrition. And that's more clearly sort of, you know, physical isolation. You can address that by, you know, more infrastructure and things like that. There is an element of social isolation, and this is actually a little bit harder to define, Mm -hmm simply because later life is a time of being more selective in terms of the relationships that you choose. Mm -hmm. There's a theory called the social selectivity theory where older people, they tend to pick and choose their relationships. They choose where to invest their emotions. And in some cases, people might just actually choose to, you know, I want to be away from people. That's that's my option. Mm-hmm. I've spent my whole life doing this and this is my alone time. Sure. And in that case, it's not such a big issue because, you know, it's a, it's a preferred state. And as long as the person is getting sort of like proper support, proper networking, proper health care, we're not so concerned. Now, the bigger concern is sort of like that feeling of being within community. And as you correctly mentioned, within our Malaysian culture, very collectivistic to be apart from community is not viewed as being the preferred state. Mm-hmm. But sometimes even within a community, being an older person surrounded by mostly younger people or you know, all your children or all your grandchildren, mm-hmm. it can be a very sort of isolating experience. Right. Um, I'll get to the care homes in a minute, but sure. um, more like, so even within a family, you might have an older person who feels like they don't belong there. They are the burden to the mm. family. And that's quite common actually in our Malaysian culture where it's almost a dissonance where Mm -hmm. there is an expectation for the family to care for them. My research actually looks at family caregiving and the expectation of care. 
Um, and so there is almost that expectation that, you know, I really want my children to take care of me. That's the most loving option. But at the same time, there's also the, you know, if my children take care of me, what about their grandchildren? Can they still send their grandchildren for the piano class yeah. or for, you know, their tuition classes, things yeah. like that? So it's almost like a dissonance. And then that can cause the older person to sort of withdraw. And, you know, right. you focus on the grandchildren. I will, I will do my own thing. Right. I will take care right. of myself. Yeah. Um, so that's one side we're seeing. Of course, care homes is a whole different ballgame altogether. Like I mentioned in our community, still not a very positive view, I would say, based on my research. Um, that's slowly moving, right. um, slowly changing, but still it's viewed as abandoning an older person. And of course, then you have that great sense of loneliness. My family doesn't care for me anymore. Yeah. They left me here. They don't want to take care of me. And that's, that's sort of like the Asian perspective yeah. of it. Yeah. The dissonance is interesting, right? Because it reveals... Uh, a dilemma that's, that's very peculiar to our time in that, you know, modern technology has made life longer. Yeah. But then that changes family expectations, yeah. right? Because there's a question of what do you do with the extra time you have? Right. Uh, ideally, it would be a healthy time. But even when you are healthy, it's the question of how do you share spaces with your mm -hmm. children and your mm -hmm. grandchildren and where do you fit in the new arrangement, right? Yeah. As then grandchildrens too have children. And yeah, yeah. So and it's a question of like, you know, as the family configuration is changing, yeah. you confront the issue of belonging again and again. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it's an ongoing conversation that has to happen rather yeah, than right. like a, like a one-size-fits-all sort of solution, right? right? I think what we're seeing now, in addition to negotiating care, is a more sort of narrow family structure. It's called the beanpole family structure. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas previously there were lots of uncles and aunts, eight siblings, ten siblings, so care of an older person was easily negotiated. You know, it might be each person takes a turn or you will have one daughter who's not working and, you know, can have the mother come stay with her, that sort of thing. Nowadays, most people choose to have one child, two children. And then in that sense, if you think about like two only children getting married, they now have four parents to take care of. And then right. they may only have one child themselves. And so with a very narrow structure, it's very difficult to decide who cares for right, whom. And if right. this family chooses to migrate to another country, for instance, the children choose to migrate or move to a, an urban area. Yeah. Then you have an issue with the care of older people again and again. Isolation. Is right. what you see here. Which raises the question of, you know, what? care entails right mm -hmm. because we tend to think of care as providing mm -hmm. but it's not just providing it's yeah. not just providing a bed in a comfortable room yeah. right? it's about recognition right it's about constantly affirming them yeah. it's about you know assuring them in their insecurities yeah. as well uh, it's a lot of work you know so yeah. i yeah. think that's where you know we get more questions and answers you yeah. know um yeah. now before we go to our first break tell us a little bit about how you got into this field because you're an up-and-coming scholar, I would say. I mean, you're not yes. old, <laughs> just to contextualize the discussion. Um, and I get it that it's an up, you know, also an up-and-coming field. So how did you get drawn to these issues? Well, when doing my undergraduate degree in psychology, I realized that, of course, we have a developmental psychology module and you learn a little bit about later life. But then I watched my own parents care for my grandmother who had dementia. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting experience because you know they would ask me like oh you studied psychology right why is she behaving this way and be like um uh, i'm not sure you know um because it just barely touches the surface yeah and to be honest now that i've learned more i feel like there's even more that i right, don't know right. but just you know personal experience and i think a lot of people out there have that where my parents when they had that experience they would talk to other people and they go like yes my mother is also behaving exactly the same way yeah, yeah. so you have a group of people with similar experiences but no one to sort of tie that knowledge together 
And that is what really led me towards this. And as I got into gerontology, I realized what a broad field it really is. There's, right, there's right. any number of issues that you can look at. And um, as you mentioned, every time I brought something up, there's a new question to ask. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. It's a very exciting place to be in. And I think yeah. if we only asked old people to study gerontology, it sort of misses the point of we're all getting there. We're all at different stages and I will eventually be in later life as well. And so I need yeah. to start learning about that now. Yeah, I do want to finesse the difference a bit in that, you know, in my field, which is largely like, you know, social sciences, liberal arts, mm-hmm. um, cultural studies, broadly speaking. Right. There are all these endless questions, too, that we encounter as researchers. You know, it's sort of like one door opens to a few more and, and it's just this wonder of discovery. But with your field, it feels more challenging in that the experience of aging is so marginalized by sort of mainstream discourse, yes. whether it's politics or culture, that yeah. getting those answers take a lot more effort than, say, my field. Yeah. Where if I want to know what's going on, I just have to like read the newspaper or ask a friend who happens right. to be a peer. Yeah. Right? But if you want to know about aging, you just can't ask another peer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to actually have not just a good sample mm-hmm. of people to talk to, but also people who are willing to share yeah. insecurities. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's very challenging, at Depending. least from uh, where I stand. But let's take a break and we'll get into more details about gerontology or the psychology of aging with Karuna Sarah Thomas, a lecturer at the uh, psychology department at Help University. I'm Ahmad Fawad and this is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fawad joined this week by Karuna Sarah Thomas, your lecturer at Help University in the psychology department focusing on gerontology and the psychology of aging. In the first part of the show, we went over the general emphases of the, the discipline that you're in and, you know, locating some of the key concerns such as social isolation, the, the challenges of researching the field, given that they are, um, if not marginalized, rarely heard, right? Yeah. So let's continue a bit in that regard. I mean, what's the experience of researching aged Malaysians like as compared to aged English people, for example, right? Because there is this sort of um, line of thinking that really wants to emphasize the potential that is still there even among the elderly, right? So if you're 80, you can still travel the world. If you're 80, you can still do yoga, right? So there's this sort of like this Western attitude where this sort of discourse of endless potential Mm -hmm. that uh, are usually reserved for people of our age, Mm -hmm. but it's transposed to even the elderly, right? Right, So like, oh, you're isolated. Why don't you pick up a new language or something, right? right? right. Whereas I don't see that sort of value in practice here, right? Uh, But I don't know. Maybe you can enlighten us. Like what are some of the cultural challenges that you have when it comes to using the same skill set that you got in the UK where you train Mm -hmm. uh, here in Malaysia? Right. I think um, that's a really good question. And this again highlights the cultural differences between where I studied in the UK and Malaysia. And um, in the UK, independence is very highly valued. Um, I know of older people who said, you know, when I get old, I'm moving away from my children. I don't Mm -hmm. want to be anywhere near them. I don't want them to interfere in my life. Whereas in Malaysia, that is very unusual and Mm -hmm. very unexpected. And even to the point where you talked about, you know, like taking up a new hobby or a new subject or really like going into a completely new field, going back to university or college, you do hear about people doing it, but they tend to be more isolated cases. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the norm. And I think it has to do a lot with how we view older people within our society. Mm -hmm. And to just clarify on that, there are various definitions of old or older people. Typically, the state pension age is used, but even within that, 
um, you have young, old, so people who are about, you know, 60, 75, then you have mid-old, 75 to 80, and then the oldest old, so mm-hmm. those 80 and above. And in our Malaysian culture, you know, if you see someone with white hair, if you see someone, you know, who has grandchildren, someone with a walking stick, you see that as someone you should respect. We're thought to sort of bow down when you walk past these older people or, you know, to always greet older people and sort of like to honour that wisdom and that experience that they have. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties in very closely to our local culture of how we respect our elders. And I'm not saying that they don't respect their elders in the UK, but just um, rather the approach that we take to it is very different. And I think because of that approach, later life in Malaysia tends to be viewed as a more cultural stage, if, Mm -hmm. if that's a way of putting it, where... It's more about passing down values and passing down like cultural experiences rather than, you know, taking up a new hobby or going cycling or going on a trip. And of course, you have people who do that. But there's also very much a time of investing in family, um, telling family, you know, this is what happened. Yeah, Um, playing with your grandkids, that kind of thing, right? That phrase comes out a lot here. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> grandkids are always fun. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and yet, um, with the changing economy, with the changing workforce, you also see certain older people who may choose to work until later life. Because in the private sector in Malaysia, you can work yeah. uh, past the retirement age. Yeah. You do have some people who might choose to continue part-time work up until they're 80, 85. Yeah. So there are different dynamics. But I think the key point here is that how we view older people is being as like a very respected group. Yeah. Um, in the UK, they respect older people, of course, but it's not to the extent where like in moral studies, we learn about, you know, giving up our seat on, on yeah. the train and yeah. all that. Whereas there, if you look at someone and you think they're old, but they don't feel old, it can actually be quite offensive if right, you give up your right, seat. Right. Um, so this is just like the differences in culture that you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, that's very interesting. Um, there's also a sense that, you know, again, let's, let's generalize for a bit, just for the sake of brevity, given <laughs> it, that it's yeah. a very brief show. It's, you know, at least for all of the issues we have here, there is greater room to discuss death. In, in, a, in a way that maybe, maybe in the West, it becomes a more difficult discussion, right? Because death implies dependency, right? Mm-hmm. Because you got to think about you know, uh, who will handle it yeah. when you go, yeah, you know, uh, inheritance. Mm. Um, but also, of course, if you have an illness, yeah. who's going to do uh, the nitty gritty work right. of, you know, ensuring that you're attended to every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and culture allows more consideration for that process because you are already occupying a position, right? Grandfather, right. great-grandfather, you know, and like it or not, you are bound to some kind of obligation towards that, even though you might not like it, right? right? So it's a part of your thinking or it's a part of the way you you maybe plan your days or Mm -hmm. weekends or holidays or something like that, where would we be right to assume that there would be less of a room there in the West where, like you said, independence is, is prized more, right? That's an interesting question. I've never actually thought about that. Um... It's hard to say because even among people who highly value their local culture, their traditional culture, within some cultures, it's a, it's a taboo to talk about death. Mm-hmm. Pantang, you know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't want to say that because you, oh, you're inviting death and all that. I think with having family nearby, it's more of an expected thing. So I think subconsciously, everyone is aware that older people are closer to death, mm-hmm. technically, than a younger person. And I think that's sort of like that awareness where, you know, I'm going to spend more time with my elderly parent because, you know, I know they are old, they Mm -hmm. don't have much time left. 
Um, but in terms of having discussions about it or being more open about it, I think this is really there's just a huge gap in research both here and right. in, in the in the West as well. Yeah, I definitely in the West it's not widely talked about. It's mm -hmm. not something people like to think about. Yeah. Um, because it seems to me. Uh, Granted, we are modernized. I don't want mm -hmm. to make it look like we're such an alien or foreign culture, you right. know. But modernity prizes potential and youth, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. we're a consumer society, we're a capitalist society. Everything is about productivity and potential. Mm -hmm. And if that's the only option you have culturally, you will feel more challenged to, to be of worth when uh, you're not productive or you no longer signal potential, right? But if the options of tradition is more apparent, say here, yeah. right? You can sort of, quote unquote, graduate to becoming a grandfather where you have a social position. Right. You're not just like okay. another 80-year-old individual who, who can't work or can't be productive or can't, yeah. can't kind of blend in with the sort of obsession with potential that liberal modernity has, right? right. It's all about like, who can you be? Or oh, you've been somebody 50 years already, be somebody new. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, take right. up a new hobby, <laughs> you know? And there's a way in which you can gloss this you know, sentimentally and say like, oh, it's about individual potential, you know, but at some point your body takes a toll, you know, yeah. and, and one thing I appreciate about at least the discursive options we have here, right, right. because we're not just modern, we mm -hmm. still have cultural attachments is that, you know what, if you're in some kind of like network of kinship mm -hmm. and you you know you have a family, you kind of just graduate to become a grandfather right. and that accords some sort of social comforts right. you know then just like i'm like another 80 year old guy in my studio apartment right. you know trying to figure out what my next hobby is yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? i think that comes so, back to the idea of status yeah, and yeah. um well, how we view older people how we respect yeah. older people and so it may not even be someone with grandchildren but just you know by being right, older right, you yeah. are you are the wise you person. walk into an mrt and somebody's gonna be like yeah. hey let's give this yeah, uncle, uncle you know you, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and so, yeah, I think you're right. There is, there is a role to be played there. It's not like a loss of identity that yeah. you might see otherwise. And I think talking about sort of end of life care and all that, I think with the expectations that we have on sort of family care, yeah. um, I think maybe that is what makes it easier actually within our local context mm -hmm. where because the expectation of care comes from children or is towards children that they would care for their elderly parents. I think the understanding that end of life care should also come from them. Yeah. Uh, so decisions about a funeral, for instance, or you know yep, yep. what happens to the house afterwards, that sort of thing. Um, it's not so widely discussed, but it's sort of understood that yeah. because of that value that we place on family and sort of community ties, it will just be arranged by the family. Whereas because of that independence that you see in Western cultures, it may not be a family that, you know, sort of yeah, like looks at yeah. the funeral arrangements. It may be a care home worker. Yeah. It may be sort or of a like a favorite even. neighbor or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so you see sort of a changing dynamic. So not so much um, more of an openness to talk about it, but just that that expectation sort mm -hmm. of paves the way for easier planning, if yeah. you will. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, you can tell how age is a less taboo aspect of our thinking here. Mm -hmm. Just by this very, very simple everyday occurrence, everybody of a certain adult age is an uncle. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and then you pay attention to the context a little bit and you have a 50-year-old man mm -hmm. calling a 70-year-old man uncle. Yeah. So yeah. even a 50-year-old man will refer to somebody older than him as yeah. an uncle. Yeah. And that, granted, it's a feeble example, but it tells us our consciousness of 
life passages. Yeah. You know, and again, this is a commonplace example. Maybe we shouldn't make too much of it. But mm-hmm. I like it that how, you know, it's already woven in our sensibility. Yeah. You know, that yeah. we're all in different stages of life. Yeah. And that, I think, makes for a richer perspective and just say we're endlessly an individual accumulating potential. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm putting my biases out there, you know, sure. because I but- think... The West is a great place to be young at, yeah. but I don't know where it's a good place to die at necessarily, you know. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think again, this speaks to the blind spots of you know of thinking about age, yeah. right? And one other thing as well that I also appreciate is how we have you know as a consequence of the things I described, we have a richer way of grieving, right? There's ceremonies, yeah. yeah. You know, you're not always grieving alone, you know, yeah. um, and even though you know, these ceremonies might be ritualistic or something. It mm-hmm. does give some context to what you're going through. Yeah. And not only that, there's also a vocabulary of grieving, at least mm-hmm. in my sort of the Malay Muslim mm-hmm. context, yeah. you know, that uh, it's not just about getting over and moving on, you know. Right. It's sort of, it seems like the kind of liberal mod- modern attitude to grieving is all about like, you know, let it pass, eh? And then, you know, working through it or something. Yeah. It seems like Deal with just, any issues that come up. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. it feels like in a more in a context where kinship is taken for granted, right, you have more metaphors to work with. You mm, know, you have yeah. an eschatology to work with. You have a sense of, you know, indebtedness, yeah. you know, that isn't just personal, but also like uh, social and cultural. So uh, again, I just kind of highlighting the different contexts yeah. and how we yeah. might think of aging differently, you know, mm-hmm. so... And I think we see this even within different cultures and what you might wear to a funeral, the colours you might wear. Yeah. It's not always black, whereas in Western funerals, you know, you have the stereotypical, mm-hmm, everyone's in black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, here, sometimes it's viewed almost like a celebration. Yeah. You've lived a really good life and now now you've reached the end and this is your reward. Yeah. And um, so just that view of death and perhaps belief in the afterlife as well, you see. Yeah, yeah. You see sort of like a very changing perspective um, yeah, with definitely. the traditions that we hold here. Yeah. I mean, ancestor worship. Well, that's very interesting, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like, uh, and sadly, we're losing that little by little yeah. by the generations, yeah. you know, but that to me is an indication of how the esteem with which aging is held, yeah. right? In that, okay, you not only are you aged, you're also ancient, and you're no longer around, but we're still going to keep remembering you. Yeah. And it's a homage to life's passage, yeah. you know, like, yeah. which is you know, which liberal modernity and its obsession with youth yeah. don't quite capture. Yeah, so we don't know? just glorify the young, it's the, yeah. the old as well. Correct, they, they have correct. value as well. So yeah. in that sense, it's a bit inclusive. You know, again, these are, I don't have the data, you do, you know, but <laughs> just looking at the cultural cues, yeah. you definitely see like um, longevity basically yeah. being played out in our everyday idiom, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, in Malaysia, what are the general topics or areas of research that's been say, the focus of gerontology? Well, care homes is actually a very big area and sort of both what do the older generation and the younger generation think about care homes. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting to read because you sort of, if you divide if you divide the population into different stages in the life course, older people tend to be against care homes, so people 65 mm-hmm. and above, for instance, and maybe because they are closer to that stage. Um, whereas people who are between, say, 40 to 60... They tend to take a more open view. I think many people in this age group are more widely traveled, perhaps. And so they've been to, say, a Western country where they've seen a more modern care home, sort of like a retirement village type concept. Right. 
and that seems more appealing to them. Whereas I think the older generation views it as sort of being abandoned. You might mm. be chained to your bed. Mm. Nobody loves you anymore. You're going to, you know, that's it. That's the end for you. You just go there and die. That sort of thing. And what do you tell them when they do raise those concerns? Well, um, there isn't much research on people actually in care homes in Malaysia, but in the UK, actually being in a care home is associated with actually better outcomes. Mm. So instead of, you know, a child rushing to care for you, go to work, come back, and then you have, you know, anger and, you know, issues within the family, every Saturday, for instance, is family time and the grandchildren come and visit. And so you get that like special time mm. even within a care home. It is not just an isolated sort of experience, but many times children bring favorite foods. Um, they come to visit every other day with like, you know, special meals and all that. Mm -hmm. So there is, it's a more involved process than just abandonment. And I think that's something that we need to sort of focus on here, that just because you are living apart from your children, it doesn't mean that they may not love you anymore. Right, right. And it can still be a very involved, very caring process. Yeah. yeah. So um, my guess is the rationale for going to a care home here might be different than, say, somewhere in the UK. What would be the reason why a family would want to send their, you know, their parents or grandparents to, to a care facility? Um, I think we're seeing some changing perspectives, actually, especially now with more women in the workforce, smaller households. So actually, mm -hmm. like the physical house is two-bedroom, right, three-bedroom, where is grandma going to sleep, where is grandpa going to sleep if he moves in? Those are some of the key issues and fairly similar to Western cultures as well. You see the mm -hmm. same issues that um, because of the need for women to work and more women are being educated, there is no one to actually take on the care role. Um, of course, you can get a foreign domestic worker or mm -hmm. someone to help out, mm -hmm. but there isn't a clear person who takes charge of the care and that right, can be quite right. quite a difficult dynamic within a family. I think you're also sort of seeing a shift towards care homes and the difference that you're seeing is that, um, so there there is the aspect of smaller households, but there's also the idea that um, when someone develops something like dementia mm -hmm. or even in later life when, of course, there's physical decline, there's muscle loss, so they're more prone to falls. Right, right. If you have, for example, a split-level house, that's not that's not conducive to an older person. Mm -hmm. um, if an older person with dementia has aggressive tendencies, um, that's very difficult on a family. And so if you have a home where there are specially trained staff who can help, if the person, if the older person, say, needs a hospital bed and the family cannot afford that, that's going to be a challenge as well. Yeah, uh, or yeah. even that round-the-clock care. Mm -hmm. um, so you're seeing sort of greater needs and that usually sort of prompts the shift into a care home where the family feels that they just cannot cope what with right. me having to work right. and, you know, having to take care of my own children. Um, I just cannot be there for someone with, say, dementia who, who might start the fire and then leave it on and forget about it. Right, right, yeah. right. So there are these practical real-life concerns, yeah. right? Um, but it's interesting that this is also tied, like you said, to basically shrinking living spaces, mm -hmm, yeah. right? And that means the family has to accommodate, uh, which essentially means the family has to, like, stay small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you sense that the, you know, relatively greater recognition that the elderly have here might be diminishing as Malaysia modernizes? I'm not sure that it's diminishing as much as it's just sort of being glanced over that... Mm. Yes, you're important, but you're only important in a cultural aspect, right, not right. in terms of how we design our cities, mm, um, how mm. we plan for lifetime homes or where older people will live. Or buildings, right? Yeah, how they yeah. design buildings. Yeah. yeah. 
So, um, or, or even just like the infrastructure of our city, are there benches so right. that an older person can, um, you know, can have a rest? Uh, are our sidewalks wide enough that a wheelchair or one of those little scooters can go through? Mm-hmm. So things like that, where the cultural aspect is there. And I think that will continue to be there. We do value our culture, but whether that will translate into actual policy, um, I think that is what remains to be seen. Right, right. Yeah. But what's your sense as somebody in this field? Do you think there's, uh, there's hope for improvement or things that are standstill now? Um, I think there's hope for improvement. Wonderful. I think as we see the aging population grow, and we already have uh, a research institute for aging, mm-hmm. we have government think tanks who are looking into this. So it's not, it's not a lost cause. We're not all just shaking right. our legs and going, oh, old people. Cool, um, cool. But... Yeah, there's definitely room for a lot more improvement because we need to do it now. If you're only thinking about it 50 years down the road, that's way too late. Yeah. In that sense, you're at a very interesting and important place to continue the conversation with uh, policymakers, but also students who, definitely. you know, they're all high on their potential right now, yeah. but we all <laughs> we all decay. <laughs> but it's, it's the reality of life. I don't know how to, how to you know, gloss yeah, it. But real life for them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Karuna Sarah Thomas is our guest today. Do you have a uh, Twitter or, you know, or Instagram like our, our listeners can try to contact you with? They want to follow up on a topic. No, actually. Um, I study old people, so I follow a trend. <laughs> well, they can be trendy um, old people too. You know? Definitely, yeah. yeah um, but, but how about books? Like basic, you know, introductory texts that you can recommend to our listeners? There's actually a really good book um, that I enjoy reading. It's a very easy read. It's called Mental Health and Aging. Okay. Um, it's actually written by psychiatrists, but it's a very easy read, very, Wonderful. very down to earth, very straight, straightforward sort of reading. And I really enjoy it as, a, as someone who studied psychology, but also sort of having no real background in this field. Good introductory text. Wonderful. Yeah, gives you a good uh, idea. Can you repeat the title and the author again, please? Okay, it's Mental Health and Aging. It's by Siegel, Qualls and Smyre. Um, the third edition was published in 2017, I believe. Awesome, yes. awesome. Thank you so much. You can email the show to bfmnightschool.gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, just type Night School in the search space or download our app at the Apple App Store. Once again, thank you, Karuna Sarah Thomas. Uh, you're a lecturer at the uh, Psychology Department of Health University and a gerontologist as well. I'm Ahmad Fatrahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.